Well, welcome to week nine of Band of Brothers and our, our series over the Gospel of John. I want to let you know this week we're going to be in John chapter 19. We're going to be in the first 16 verses. So you can go ahead and flip there. I'm going to pray for us before we get started. Um, but while I'm praying, you can go ahead and flip there. So, Father, thank you for today. God, just thank you for bringing us here today as we dive into your word. Lord, I pray that as we, we look at the story of you bringing your, your, your plan of redemption forward through the life of Jesus. I pray that we would, we would see um, your actions there, and Lord, that we would uh, just follow you wholeheartedly. Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds as we, we dive into your word, and Lord, I pray that you would bless uh, just our time in John chapter 19 today. Father, I pray that we would take what we learn and apply it to our lives, and um, Lord, it would be you speaking through me and, and not my words as, uh, as you teach this passage. So in your name I pray, amen. So one of the things that I want to start off by doing is a lot of this series we've talked about, these are very familiar stories. So we'll be in John 19 today, and it's kind of picking up from where we left off last week, where, we're, where Jesus is still standing before Pilate. These stories are really familiar because, especially if you're like me, I grew up in the church, and so around Easter, we hear all about the Passion Week. And so these are stories that we're familiar with, and a lot of times because of that, we tend to either go past some things, overlook some things, or we just kind of skip past this because we, we've heard these stories so many times. And so as we address this passage today, one of the things I want to ask you to do is kind of forget what we know and let's look at this from a fresh perspective with fresh eyes as we dive in and we truly see just everything that is in this passage and really focusing on the, the kingship of Jesus as we see in, in this situation. So one of the things that I want to do that's a little different is I want to start with the last verses of this passage. We're going we're gonna to start in John chapter 19 verses 14 and 16 because what it's going to do is it's going to show us the end game of this story. We're, we're going to see what, what is happening, what, what is going to be leading into next week as Jesus is delivered over to the, uh, to the Jewish leaders to be crucified. So John chapter 19, verses 14 through 16, it says, He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now the he here is Pilate. Pontius Pilate says, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So the people shouting here, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. That is the chief priest. That is the high priest. And they say, and Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priest, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders say, We have no king but Caesar. So what's happening here? At, at the end of this passage, what we're seeing is Pilate is caving to the demands of the Jewish leaders, of the Sanhedrin, of the high priest. See, what, what has happened up to this point is they've demanded Jesus' death. And this is for a number of reasons, as we'll see today, whether it's uh, political of you know, painting Jesus as an insurrectionist or religious, Jesus claiming to be God as we've seen him all throughout the Gospel of John. But because of this, they have, they have demanded that Jesus be put to death. They have asked Pilate to crucify him. And so in this moment, what does Pilate do? Pilate is going to present Jesus to the religious leaders, to the Jewish leaders, to the high priest in a, in a mocking way. He presents them as their king. He said in those verses, behold, your king. 
And as we'll see later, he's wearing a crown of thorns. He's wearing a purple robe. He is, it's, it's mocking him. It's a mock coronation of the king of the Jews. But what happens is the Jewish leaders reject Jesus. We've seen them do this throughout this gospel, but here standing before Jesus, they say, no, that's not our king. We have no king but Caesar. So they reject Jesus, but it's accompanied by this, this damning admission that their king is actually Caesar. They, they are claiming that the, the king of kings is actually not their king. Their king is that of Caesar. They say, we have no king but Caesar. So who is it that's saying this? So when these words are spoken, it's, it's the two chief priests. It's Annas and Caiaphas. We, we've seen Caiaphas a few times in John chapter 11, and we've seen him all throughout the Passion Week. But Annas and Caiaphas were the two chief priests. Annas used to be the chief priest. He was the chief priest, the high priest for a while. And then he retired, and then Caiaphas has stepped in, and he is now the high priest. He is the leader of the Jewish people. And what's interesting is Annas, as we've learned in the past few weeks, Annas is actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas, so this position has stayed in the family. And so they're the high priest, and the office of the high priest is the highest-ranking religious leader in Israel. It's the highest-ranking position um, of the Jewish uh, religious elite. And what we've seen throughout Scripture is it's actually a kind of a fascinating side note is the high priest, the, the leader of the Jewish people, is supposed to be from the tribe of Levi. So we know that Annas and Caiaphas, if they are the high priest, they are from the tribe of Levi. Here, the, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines the office of the high priest this way. It says, it's the highest office in the hierarchy of priests and Levites. It was the chief priest who alone went into the most holy place of the temple once a year to make atonement for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. Now, what does this mean? So first, again, we see that the highest religious office in the nation of Israel is the high priest, is the chief priest. So they were charged with leading the Jewish people, leading them um, in, in, in their Jewish faith. But what was one of the responsibilities is they, once a year, would go into the most holy place in the temple and prepare and give a sacrifice for the atonement, for the redemption of the sins of the people of Israel. They were the only one that could do that. And so this was one of the main responsibilities of the high priest, and we see that that responsibility comes from being the highest-ranking religious official. So these are the people that are standing before Pilate, and they are the ones that are saying, them along with the Sanhedrin, that... We have no king but Caesar. And so knowing this about their position, we learn that they should know better. They, they are highly intelligent. They were educated in the Hebrew scriptures. They would have known, they would have seen all throughout the Old Testament, or they should have, that Jesus was fulfilling all of the prophecies that they saw. They, they were standing before the king of kings and saw that he was doing this, but they, they didn't they didn't see it. They were blind to this truth. So them being these well-trained people in the scriptures and honestly, probably having the majority, if not all of it memorized, they should have seen this. But their response to Pilate, their response to the King of Kings speaks volumes about who they believe Jesus was. And it speaks volumes about, their, about themselves. You see, they say they have no king but Caesar and that statement would imply, at the very least, that 
They, they are loyal to Caesar and they want to stay under his control. And that is who they worship. That is who they are um, pledging their loyalty to. But really, this isn't true. They weren't the biggest fans of Caesar. They, they actually just knew that their position of authority, their power, was all dependent upon his approval. You see, at the time, the, the Jewish leaders and the people of Israel were able to operate under really their, their own religious laws while Caesar was ruling over them. They, they were kind of given that freedom, and they knew that while they had that, they really needed to make sure that they stood, they had good standing with Caesar. And so they, they really knew what to say in these moments to make sure that Caesar approved of them. So their positions of power, their, their maintaining the status quo was dependent upon his approval. And see, so what we see here is that they're just a self-aggrandizing men who are only looking after their self-interest. They're not looking after here the, the people of Israel. They're not looking after what is best for them when it comes to their faith. What they're doing is they're trying to keep their own self-interest at bay. They are trying to maintain their authority and their power. And what happens is we see by this admission that they are completely blind to the truth. They literally, these were men who, who were able to stand in front of Jesus. They were talking with Jesus, walking with Jesus, yet they could not believe, they could not see that He was the King of kings. He was the Lord of lords. He was the Savior, the Messiah. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at what Jesus actually says about these men. This is in John chapter 8. It says, You are of your father the devil. He says of these men that they are of the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus says that these men are of the devil. They, they're following after him. See, they're guilty of cultural compromise and spiritual complacency. Now, what do I mean when I say that? They're guilty of cultural compromise because they're doing and compromising their beliefs in order to maintain their position, in order to maintain their self-interest. They are trying to keep their place in culture. They're trying to keep their, their place in, in order to fit in. And so they're compromising their beliefs in that sense. And then spiritual complacency, guys, they... They are standing before the King of Kings, and yet they are rejecting Him. So it's easy for us in this moment to, to look at them and, and say, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're the religious leaders of this country, yet, or of these people, yet you're rejecting the Messiah. You're rejecting the King of Kings. How easy is it for us to say that of them? But I think what we need to do is, we need to look at Jesus' words to the Pharisees, to some people of the Sanhedrin, as we start having those thoughts. You see, earlier in John chapter 8, he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. So this was spoken by Jesus to the Pharisees, but it applies to us today. It applies to us in this sense. We see that, that Jesus was telling the Pharisees that, those who are without sin, they, they throw the first stone. So when we look at this passage, when we look at this well-known passage of John chapter 19, Jesus before Pilate, before the, the Sanhedrin, and we look at them and we say, God, what are you doing? You are standing before the King of Kings. How in the world 
Could you be blind to this truth? How in the world could you reject Jesus in this moment? We need to ask ourselves, okay, let's back up. Are we guilty of the same thing? Are we guilty of cultural compromise? Are we, are we guilty of moments where we come before culture, whatever it is, and we compromise our beliefs to maintain our status quo, to make sure that we fit in? Are we, you know, do we exhibit spiritual complacency? Are there moments where we are complacent in our faith and aren't really growing in it and aren't really seeking after the Lord? Now, guys, when I ask these questions, I don't, I'm not asking them on this high horse because, guys, I've done this too. I, I have been in moments where I've compromised my beliefs because of culture. I, have, I am guilty of cultural complacency, and, man, I've been compl- uh, complacent in my spiritual walk at times. And so I think as we read this passage, what we need to do is we need to look at the life of Jesus, or we need to look at the Pharisees, look at the the Sanhedrin, look at these chief priests and say, okay, when in my life have I done that? Am I doing that now? Are we, have we placed other kings, i.e. Caesar, have we placed other kings before the king of kings? Do we have another king other than Jesus? So that is the end of this, this passage. That's where all things from here on out is, are going to be leading to as we dive into this passage today. And so think about these, these questions as we go through the story. Are we guilty of cultural compromise? Have we been spiritually complacent? And ultimately, have we placed another king before the king of kings? So picking up in John chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So what we see here is is Pilate has had Jesus flogged. He's had him beaten to a pulp. And then what does he go on to do? He goes on to essentially crown him in a crown of thorns. It's it's a mock coronation. There is so much imagery here. And what I mean by there being a mock coronation is Jesus is declared the king of the Jews, but this is is supposed to embarrass the Jewish people. This is supposed to be done in a mocking way. He's given a crown of thorns, uh, a cheap purple robe. We see in Matthew 27 that he's given a scepter made of reeds. And then ultimately, at the end of it all, he is praised in a mocking manner, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, let's, let's think through this imagery, right? A crown of thorns. If you look back in uh, Roman society or look back at pictures of Caesar Augustus, or honestly, as I've been researching this passage and looking at things in the past, you can see on a lot of Roman coins, it's, there's a picture of the ruler, and they're wearing this crown, but it's a crown of leaves. And so you you can see those when you look back at Roman society and and the ruling class of that day. And this is the exact opposite of that. It's it's a crown of thorns. It's meant to inflict pain. um, And it's it's meant to mock the Lord. A cheap purple robe. The, The ruling class of the day, they wore purple. It was a sign of royalty. But here we see it's just a a cheap piece of fabric that's purple that's thrown on Jesus. And then a scepter of reeds. And then finally, 
they, they, they say, Hail, King of the Jews. This was all done in a mocking way before the high priest, before the Sanhedrin. But even in all of this, this mocking and all of this, the scorn, the beating of Jesus, what's fascinating is these people were unknowingly identifying Jesus as their king. See, Jesus was truly the king of the Jews. They meant this in a mocking way, but it was true. But here's what we know is Jesus's kingship was not of this world. Ken talked about that last week at the end of John chapter 18. What we see is Jesus say that my kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus didn't need a crown for this to be established. He didn't need a purple robe. He didn't need royal robes. He had no use for a scepter. Ultimately, his power and authority came from God and God alone. And we've seen this all throughout the Gospels, uh, going back to some of the synoptic Gospels. In Matthew 28, this is Jesus. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. John chapter 3, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then finally, John chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given Him authority over everything and that He had come from God and would return to God. So we've seen all throughout the Gospels that Jesus has established that His authority has come from above. His authority has come from the Father, the one who sent Him. Now, we, we've beat this horse so many times of that Jesus is sent by God, and I'm going to reiterate that because Jesus keeps doing that. In these moments, we see that His authority comes from God, and He is from above. Jesus is sent from the Father, and it's from his Father, from God, that he has his authority to rule over his kingdom. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 4 of John chapter 19. It says, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This was Pilate saying this. It says, So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. What's interesting about this passage or about just these couple of verses is that we see Pilate over and over again affirm his belief that Jesus is innocent. We saw this last week. He said, I find no guilt in him. And we'll see later on, he continues to be confused why the Jewish people want him to be crucified. Why do they want Jesus to be crucified? Because Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. He is innocent. We see in John chapter 18, 38, this is of Pilate. It says, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. In 19 verse 4, like what we just read, it says, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then we'll see here in verse 6, it says, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. In this moment, uh, Pilate is just throwing his hands up in the air. He's like, look, I have told you so many times that I find this guy innocent. I don't understand why you're wanting to crucify him. He is innocent. He is not guilty. I find no guilt in him. So you take him for yourselves and you crucify him because I don't find him guilty. So this is huge. This is significant, very significant that Pilate has found him innocent. You see, he has over and over again repeated this idea that he is innocent, that Jesus is innocent and is not guilty. 
But what's happening here is he is unknowingly affirming what the scriptures have predicted all along, what, what scripture has pointed to this entire time. Specifically in this passage in Isaiah, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sin. But he was pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You see, the Lord laid on Jesus on the cross the sins of all of us. He, he died on the cross for our sins. You see, Jesus was the guiltless, dying on behalf of the guilty. This whole time, Pilate has said, this man is innocent. He is not guilty. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he is the, he is the guiltless. He is the innocent person dying on the behalf of us, the guilty, the sinners. The Lord laid on him the sins of all of us, and he died on the cross so that you and I might have life. John chapter 1, verse 29 says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For the Messiah also suffered for sins once for all, an innocent person for the guilty, so that he could bring you to God. So we've established this, and we know that Jesus is innocent. He isn't guilty. Pilate stands before the chief priest and says, This man is not guilty. I find no guilt in him. So what ultimately the chief priests are going to do what the Sanhedrin was going to do, them delivering Jesus to the cross, is it's an abomination. What they were about to do was an abomination. We see in Proverbs 17, 15, it says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, both are detestable to the Lord. What the Sanhedrin, the chief priests were about to do was deliver an innocent man over to be crucified, deliver an innocent man to be killed. They over and over again in this passage, as we'll see, say crucify him, away with him, away with him, crucify him. They are calling for this over and over again. And we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John that they have tried to make plans to put Jesus to death multiple times. This has been on their minds often, even though he is innocent. He is not guilty. And so what they're about to do is an abomination. It is detestable before the Lord. It's detestable to the Lord. So we see that they're demanding Jesus' death. They, they keep saying, crucify him. But what they don't know is they're, they're actually demanding the very sacrifice that their sins require. You see, what they're doing here is something that's detestable before the Lord, but they're, they're living in sin. They're all sinners. And the sacrifice that is going to come from Christ is a sacrifice required for their sins. You see, Jesus was the spotless lamb. He was the lamb without blemish. And his death covered the sins of those who believe in him, the death of the lamb without blemish. So with that in mind, let's pick up in John chapter 19, verse 7. It says, We have a law, 
And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So what's happening here? We've seen kind of two categories of objections to Pilate from the, the high priest. They've been both political and religious. To start off, everything that we've seen so far has been political. They have gone before Pilate and tried to paint Jesus as this insurrectionist, this revolutionary, this guy who's going to come in and establish his own kingdom and break down all of the kingdoms that are around him in the moment. And so that's what they've painted. And when they realize that this isn't going to work, they turn to the religious objections. So what they do is they turn to the religious objections to really before Pilate, because Pilate is only listening to the political and finding Jesus innocent and not guilty of these objections that they've raised. So the Jewish leaders have leveled seven indictments against Jesus. As we look back through the, the, the Gospels, we see a few different indictments that they have laid out. And so here are the seven indictments that they have. So one, they've threatened to destroy the temple. Two, they've threatened or they've claimed that Jesus was a criminal. Three, they've said that he's misled the nation. Four, they've for, forbidding them from giving tribute to Caesar. So for, forbidding uh, the Jewish leaders from giving any kind of tribute to Caesar. Five, they've claimed that he stirred up the people. Six, they've claimed that Jesus has claimed to be king. And then finally, seven, that Jesus has declared himself to be the son of God. What's interesting about these, these claims that we see throughout the Gospels is really only two of them are like have any kind of semblance of truth, and that's six and seven of claiming to be king, which Jesus was the king. He's the king of kings. He was the king of the Jews. And then seven, declaring himself to be the son of God. Like I've said, the whole Gospel of John points to that as the identity of Jesus as the son of God. We've seen this over and over and over again. And so that's true. So the rest of these are really just lies or over-exaggerations that the Jewish people are trying to use to ultimately achieve their end of having Jesus crucified, having Jesus put to death. So as I was looking through these over the past week and just preparing for this, I ran across this quote from a theologian. His name is A.W. Pink, and it says, This sevenfold indictment witness to the completeness of their rejection of him. And so what's interesting about this quote is the number seven is actually the, the number of completion. So to the Jewish people, the number seven is it's the, the perfect number. It's the, the number of completion. And so what's interesting here is they've leveled these seven charges against Jesus. And what it's done is it completed their rejection of Jesus. It's, re- it's completed their rejection of the king, of the king of kings, of the Messiah, of the Savior. And so there, it's, it's signed, sealed, delivered. They're rejecting Jesus here. And this is a completeness of that. So for the Jewish people at the time, one of the greatest charges that they were bringing forward in their minds was that Jesus was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the God, claiming to be God. And we've seen this many times, right? So for them, this was one of those religious objections, but they're basing it off the Mosaic Law because this was actually considered blasphemy. You could not claim to be God. This was a blasphemous statement. And the penalty for it was death. 
And so they knew that they weren't getting anywhere with the, the political objections. So bringing forth their religious laws in which they were able to operate under, under Caesar, they say, we have this law that he is claimed to be God, so therefore that is blasphemy and we, we need to put him to death. But what's fascinating is Jesus being put to death for this, it's they're going to kill Jesus for being exactly who he said he was. So they think that they're putting him to death because he spoke a blasphemous statement, but in reality, he is actually God. He is the King of Kings. And so they are putting him to death for Jesus confirming his identity. So moving forward into verse 8 of John chapter 19, it says, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So you remember, the, the religious people of the time, the, the high priest, the chief priest, have said and realized that they've gotten nowhere when it comes to their political objections. So they jump to the religious objections of, this man is claimed to be God, therefore we have this rule, so we need to put him to death. So when, when it says Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. So Pilate in this whole situation is fearful. He's been confused this whole time. I mean, you can imagine, as we saw last week, he went back and forth between himself and Herod and trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. He, he finds him innocent. He's not guilty, so he's confused. So this, this whole affair has just made him confused. He's, he's shaken. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't really understand what's going on. He, he doesn't have a clue as what's happening. And to him, he believed that he was having to put to death somebody he found innocent. He, he has found no guilt in Jesus and so he's confused as to why he has to put him to death or why these people want him to put to death. I mean, if you remember last week when Jesus is presented before the Jewish people, he says, why, why do you want to put this guy to death? What has he done? Like, I can't find anything guilty in him. And so he, he believed he was having to kill an innocent man. But what was interesting is we see in one of the other Gospels is uh, Pilate's wife stand, comes before him and, and has said that she had a dream that Jesus was innocent, and she said that she had a dream concerning Jesus and told Pilate, let this guy go. You don't want to have anything to do with this. Let him go. And so he's got the, the high priest saying, we want this guy crucified. And then he's got his, his wife saying, no, you need to let this guy go. And then Pilate thinking to himself, I think he's innocent. And so there's just so much going on, and Pilate's confused. He's scared, especially as he sees these high priests bring forward this religious objection, he doesn't know what to do. He's scared. He's, he's fearful. So in John chapter 19, verses 9 through 10, here's what it says. So he, Pilate, entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? So being in this fearful state, this confused state, Pilate enters into his headquarters again and goes before Jesus and says, where are you from? I, I, I'm confused about who you are. What, what are you doing? Where are you from? What's going on? And Jesus doesn't answer him. In this moment, we see Pilate's pride, his arrogance come forward because what does he say? He immediately says, you're not going to speak to me? And he, he views this this non-answer of Jesus in a pompous lie because he says, are you not going to speak to me? Do you not know? Essentially he's saying, do you not know who I am? Do you not know that I have the authority to put you to death and the authority to release you? 
essentially Pilate saying like, look, you better answer my questions because I have all the authority here. I have the power in this situation. I am in control. You see, all of the people involved in this situation, whether it's Pilate, the high priest, whoever, Herod, they all think that they're operating in their self-interest and they're operating with control of the situation. But in reality, they're just pawns in, in this plan to bring forward God's plan of redemption. Pilate was, was really only this, this pawn in God's ultimate plan of redemption for his people. In this moment, God is operating under, the, under his will. He's bringing forth his will and bringing forward his plan of redemption. So after Pilate claims this, after Pilate says, do you not realize the authority that I have? Jesus answers him and says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given, you, given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What we see here is Pilate is actually operating under the authority of God Almighty. And all that's been going on is according to the sovereign will of God. Everything that has happened up to this point, let's let's just look at the, the Passion Week. We see Jesus being arrested in the garden. We see him bring brought forth to Pilate, to Herod, to all of these people. If you remember a few weeks ago, I said, imagine being a disciple in that moment, seeing the guy you claim to, or you think to be the Messiah being carried away, being arrested, and ultimately going to the cross. In this moment, you're freaking out, you're terrified, you're you're wondering is everything really happening in the way that it should be? Is this guy really who he says he is? But all of this is going to, according to God's will, it's, it's God's will, this plan that God is bringing forward for the redemption of mankind. And to kind of summarize that, we see this in, in Luke chapter 4. It says, for, and it's of this, the same story. It says, For truly in this city... There were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what do we learn from this? That we learn that God is in complete control. Every single one of these actors in this, in this story thought they were in control, but in reality, God is in complete control the whole time. Every single person, so Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jewish people, the the chief priests, all of them were operating under the sovereign rule of God. They were just instruments instruments in the hand of God to bring forward His will, to accomplish His will of redeeming people, of bringing redemption through Christ's death on the cross. So with all of that in mind, and after Jesus tells Pilate that you, you would have no authority if it weren't given to you by the Father, and us knowing that Jesus' authority comes from the Father, Pilate brings out Jesus again and says, Behold your king. And what's fascinating about this is in John chapter 11, we saw Caiaphas do something kind of similar in the sense that he was unknowingly speaking truth, and Pilate's doing the same thing here. We see Jesus, again, being brought out in a crown of thorns, in a purple robe. He's got the scepter of reeds, and people are screaming, the soldiers are screaming, Hail, King of the Jews. And he's speaking truth because Jesus truly was the King of the Jews. So everything in this story 
is going to continue to point to the reality of Jesus' identity. We started looking last week at the kingship of Jesus and how John focuses on that immensely, especially in these last few chapters, that Jesus is king. He is bringing forth his kingdom. He is the king of kings. So he makes the kingship of Jesus the central theme moving forward. And where do we see this? We see this in the kingly attire, right? The, the crown of thorns. And all of this is in a mocking way, but the crown of thorns, the, the purple robe, the, the scepter, the, the adulation of Jesus saying, Hail, King of the Jews. John is pointing to the kingship of Jesus in all of this. And so when Pilate declares this and presents Jesus in front of the high priest, he says in a, in a mocking way, Look, this is your king. Behold, your king. This guy who I have beaten to a pulp and I've dressed in all these things, this is your king. But in reality, while they're doing this in a mocking manner, they're actually speaking truth. That Jesus is king. He truly is the king of the Jews. He is the the king of kings. But as they're standing there, Pilate says, behold your king. The high priest and the Sanhedrin ultimately reject Jesus. They reject him as their king. They refuse to acknowledge his rightful rule and his authority. Because what do they say? Remember, they say, we have no king but Caesar. So in, this, in saying this, they're rejecting the divinity and the sovereignty of the Son of God. They're rejecting all of these traits that we know to be true of Jesus, his, his sovereignty, his kingship, him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. They're rejecting all of this in, that, in this moment. And not only are they rejecting it, they say, we have no king but Caesar. You see, they knew what they needed to say in order to get Pilate to do what they wanted him to do. They they knew the things that they should say to maintain their approval from Caesar, but also how to get Pilate to ultimately send this guy to to the cross to be crucified. They thought by saying we have no king but Caesar that they were condemning Jesus to his death. But in reality, they were condemning themselves. In reality, they were bringing forth their complete rejection of Jesus as king. They were completely rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Son of God. Everything that we've seen him declare of his identity, they were rejecting this. And so with that in mind, I want to read John chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And here's what it says. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. You see, in the last part of that verse, again, we see John going back to the references of light and dark. The light has come into the world. The king has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light. Right now, as Jesus is standing before the high priest, as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and Pilate points him and says, Behold your king. They say, we have no king but Caesar. And in that moment, they are choosing the darkness over light. So this is, the light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world, but the people have loved the darkness rather than the light. 
So going through this passage and going through especially this moment of their rejection of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what about us? Where, where do we do what the, the high priests were doing here? Are we an innocent bystander in this story? Are we going to be the, the first people to stand up and throw a stone at the high priest and say, how in the world could you do this? Like you had Jesus walking in front of you, speaking to you, and you still rejected him. Are we going to be the ones that cast those stones at the religious leaders of Israel? Or are we complicit in this as well? Are we, are we complicit and culpable of the same actions that the religious leaders were taking during this time? You know, have we made Caesar our king? Have we, have we said the phrase, we have no king but Caesar? Now you can fill that blank with anything, but have we made something a king rather than Jesus? Guys, we, we can be guilty of replacing Jesus as king. We do this all the time. And again, I'll reiterate, I, I'm, I'm not saying this on a high horse. I'm saying this because I've done this as well. So I think what we need to do in this story is take a step back and look. What have we, where in our life have we made something else king rather than Jesus? We do this when we demand our own way, seeking our autonomy. Think back to last week. We looked at a lot of the Garden of Eden. We looked at uh, just different stories at the beginning of Genesis and throughout Scripture. A lot of what we've done is sought our own, our, our own autonomy, seeking to make our decisions our own way. We want to do things our own way. And so in that, we're making that a king over Jesus. When we battle for our rights, when we place our faith in men, ultimately when we put our hope in the things of this world, what we're doing is we're placing those things in the slot there of Caesar. So we have no king but faith in men, hope in the things of this world. Guys, ultimately at the end of the day, if we put our, our hope, our faith in anything but that of Christ, it's going to fail us every time. We place, I love that when we place our faith in men, I mean, ultimately, man is going to fail you every time. And so we are guilty of replacing Jesus as king by replacing him with anything other than himself. So as we go through, through this week in this lesson, what we need to do is ask ourselves, are we guilty of submitting to the rule of a king other than the true king of kings, other than Jesus himself? And so I want us to think about that as we go into these discussion questions. The first one says, what are the false kings in your life? Take a few minutes to consider the following statement and share what you might put in the blank. I have no king but. So what I want you to do here is just in an introspective way, fill in the blank. I have no king but. We saw the high priest say they have no king but Caesar. What in your life have you replaced Jesus with? What is king in your life other than Jesus? The second question says, Pilate was a bit overconfident when it came to his authority. In what ways do you suffer from the same problem? Why is it so important that we understand and submit to the authority of Jesus? And lastly, Peter reminds us that the Messiah also suffered for sins once for all, an innocent person for the guilty, so that he could bring you to God. That's the first Peter verse that we read earlier. Why is it so important that we recognize the innocence of Jesus and our, and our own guilt? Why is it important that we understand that Jesus Christ was innocent? He was not guilty. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Why is it important for us to understand and recognize His innocence 
and then also admit and know and be take responsibility for our own guilt, our own sin. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for today. And God, just thank you for this, this beautiful passage of just reminding us who you are. Lord, you truly are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And I pray that as we go throughout this week, that we would be constantly reminded of that. Father, I pray that we are able to look at our lives and see places where we have placed something else above you, where we are worshiping another king that is not you. Father, I pray that you would reveal that to us, and I pray that you would help us move away from that and move towards you, move towards you being our king, and I pray that that is where we would rest and that is where we would sit. Father, I pray that you would take um, everything that we've been taught today, Lord, and you would help us apply it to our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.